Well, good morning, Fullerton Free, and uh, good morning those of you who are tuning in from home. It's nice to have you here. You may, uh, I don't know, you can tell this online, but I, I moved over to one side because we've got the group of people that are in the room are all kind of on the, whatever, this is stage right or whatever, so it's nicer just to be a little bit closer, you know? But although it does kind of put you in the splash zone, so you have to be careful. Uh, my name's Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. We are continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. We've got two more weeks in Ephesians, and uh, this is a, a relatively familiar text, and any time we're in a familiar text, it requires uh, that we come to it with fresh eyes on purpose, that we don't bring our preconceived ideas, but that we uh, ready ourselves to see how God will speak afresh to us out of a text uh, that we may feel like we sort of already have uh, figured out. I I will say this, by the way, uh, as a Father's Day gift to all the dads out there, I want you to know that it was a very purposeful choice for me not to come out here this morning dressed in a Roman centurion costume. Uh, There were several people on our teaching team who thought that would be a wise idea for me to come out dressed in uh, like a Roman outfit, but I thought my muscular thighs would be distracting to what we're trying to do, you know what I'm saying? So I decided, as a gift to all of you for Father's Day, I decided to leave that out. Although, for the kids uh, who have the coloring sheet, you'll notice there is a picture of a Roman centurion on there. Uh, That cartoon character was... Uh, modeled after me. So that is, that is my physique. I just wanted to be clear on where that came from. When we come to Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20, which is our text today, we're essentially at the end of his letter. And, uh, and he'll have like a final greeting, which we'll look at next week. But this last piece, in fact, in verse 10, he says, finally, and in, in one sense, what he's doing is saying, okay, I'm, I'm wrapping this thing up. In order for us to understand this last section, we have to think again about the grandeur and the splendor and the, and the awesomeness of what we've already seen in the book of Ephesians. I mean, this book has laid out for us unbelievable truth. The idea being that you and I were dead and lost in our sin. Not only were we separated from God because of our wickedness, because of our sin, we were also divided from each other. There are all these divisions between the tribes of the earth, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Greek and Scythian, and all these other things that have divided us over time. And what the writer to Ephesians is saying is that God has a better plan than that. God has a better plan than to leave us dead and lost in our sin. And so his purpose in all of time, he predestined, to rescue us from sin and death, to rescue us from those divisions. Jesus comes and his his spectacular power, he sheds his blood on our behalf, he rises from the dead, and he obtains for us by his grace the very same resurrection life. He chooses us and he calls us, he adopts us, he seats us, raises us up and seats us with Christ. That we don't have to remain separated. We don't have to remain dead. There is, by his grace, this resurrection life we can be living. And that's really the way the the book begins. It begins by going, do you understand what God has done? It's this incredible picture of freedom and reconciliation and restoration. He says God no longer wants us to be divided. He wants us in the humble solidarity and recognition of where we come from to be one family, one new man, one new race under the headship of Christ, that Jesus is uniting all things under himself by his power. And then in the the second half of the book, he goes on to say the way this sort of functionally plays out in our lives, that functionally, we are meant to be united with one another, even though we're all different. We have different strengths, we have different backgrounds, we have different experience. There is a diversity in who we are, but even in the midst of that diversity, we're called to serve one another and to submit to one another. The, The last section of the book, which has all these action steps, essentially says, be united, even in the distinct, you know, uniqueness of 
who you are, and then serve each other. He says, no longer walk in the futility of your mind, but live holy lives. He calls us to purity, to put on Christ and reveal Christ in the way we live. And not only that, as we saw in the text last week, not only to imitate Christ, but to serve one another, to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. So in the last section, he says, based on who God is and based on this spectacular plan that God has to rescue and redeem us, to lift us up and adopt us, humble yourself, serve one another, right? It's, it's a spectacular image. It's a beautiful picture of a different way of life, the kingdom of God. And if you've been with us through the whole study, it feels like verse after verse, you're just going, yeah, I ache for that, right? I just want that unity. I want that harmony. I want that purity among the people of the earth. That is God's plan. But as we get to this last section, he gives us a little bit of a warning. He says, this is God's purpose and his plan, but you need to know that because it is God's purpose and his plan to free us and to rescue us and to redeem us, you need to know that your enemy, the devil, is dead set against every point of Christ's victory in that process. So the unity and the harmony and and the individuality that submitted to one another, all of those things that Jesus is working to accomplish and has achieved... The enemy is working to distort and deceive and misdirect us from. He's working to divide. That's what this last section is. You need to understand, he's saying, that while this peace has been accomplished by Christ, we will never experience peace this side of the return of Christ outside of struggle. Let me say that again. You and I will never experience the peace that's described in the text outside of an ongoing supernatural struggle. A supernatural struggle. It's interesting because he's just been telling us about the need to submit to one another. I think what he's saying here is we submit to one another and we stand against the enemy, right? We stand against the devil. Unfortunately, in practice, most of the time in our life, we end up standing against one another and submitting to the devil. We get it exactly wrong, right? We end up falling for his lies and falling for his deceit and believing the accusations and the fiery darts that he shoots against us. Paul says, no, no, submit to one another, stand against him, stand against the forces of evil. And so this last section is a reminder that we're in a battle. It's a reminder that we are called to stand. I just want to look at it kind of systematically this morning, work our way through. He begins in verse 10 by saying, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now that word finally is both kind of the way he's indicating that he's coming to the end of his letter, but you should know that in some of our earliest manuscripts, the word is actually translated closer to the idea of henceforth or from now on, right? For, from now on until the return of Christ, you need to know you're going to be in a battle. So he is concluding his letter, but he's also letting us know what the state of things will be. He says, finally, or henceforth, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There are three terms here that talk about God's strength. And it's interesting because all three of those same terms we've already seen in our study in Ephesians, right? When he talks here about us being strong in the Lord's strength and might and power, it's the very same trio of words he uses in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. See if this rings a bell for you from earlier in our study. Earlier in the study, uh, he says this. He says, we are to know what is, in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. There's that same trio of words. 
His immeasurable power at work, working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sealed him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This, rever- uh, this reference here isn't accidental. He's talked about the resurrection power in his great and glorious might at the beginning of the book. Now at the end of the book, he's referring us back to him and saying, you and I need to stand firm in that same resurrection power. He's, it's important to note he's not saying we need to have our own reserves of strength. That we don't find strength to stand by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or giving it the old heave-ho or just striving a little bit harder. That the call for us here, henceforth, is to be strong where? In the Lord, in his power, in the strength of his might. That strength, the Lord's strength, that resurrection power is the fuel for everything else he's going to call us to do. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I want you to see there's uh, this really cool sort of cooperation that happens, right? There's a cooperation in that we're called to stand in the strength of God. So it's his strength, it's his spectacular power, it's also his armor. I think when I was a kid and I read these verses or I had these verses taught to me, I always sort of imagined that it was God forging some special armor for me that, that was my size, right? That he's forging Darren-sized armor and he's forging Greg-sized armor and he's forging Amy-sized armor and he's, he's making us our own suit of armor. That's not what he's referring to here. What he's referring to is the idea that God affords us the opportunity to wear his armor. All throughout the Old Testament, we see in Isaiah and in Psalms and in other places, a reference to this this picture or the image of God clothing himself in his own glorious armor. I'll, I'll just give you one particular example out of Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 59, verse 17, speaking about God, it says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now granted, this is poetic imagery, but the idea here, as he's referring to it in Ephesians 6, is not that we sort of find the armor that God has crafted uniquely for us, but rather he is inviting us to put on his armor. So look at the cooperation. It's God's strength and God's armor. But what's required of us? What's required of us is, number one, that we be in his strength. So there's a dependence that's required of us, that we're not striving and pushing and trying to do it on our own. But number two, there's the action of having to put it on. There's an encouragement here for us to put on the armor of God. And so the implication is it's not enough to just sort of assume that will happen. We have to be intentional about pursuing it. The righteousness and the gospel readiness and the faith and the peace, the things that we see in this list are things we have to pursue and put on God's armor. So there's a, there's a spiritual cooperation between us and God. He invites us to put on his strength, to put on his armor, in order that we will, what? Stand firm. This standing firm is important also. Between verses 11 and 14, the idea of standing or standing firm or withstanding are mentioned four times. And it's important that you understand the purpose of the supernatural armor, right? God's gonna equip us in his strength to wear his armor. And the purpose of that equipment is that we would stand ground. Here's why this is important. I think sometimes we sort of get this idea that we're meant to be demon hunters or that we're supposed to go out and find Satan and attack him and crush him and that we're supposed to be on the offensive. I want you to understand that according to this text, 
All of the offensive work has already been completed and accomplished by Christ, right? All the ground that will be taken supernaturally, all of the victorious strength has already been done, right? All of that work has already been accomplished. All we're called to do as his disciples is to hold the ground, to hold the ground, to not let ourselves be deceived, to not let ourselves be taken captive, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. We're called to hold the ground that Jesus has already victoriously taken. There isn't a call for us to forge new ground or to find new victories, but rather to stand firm, holding on to the victory that is already accomplished in Christ. That's what the armor of God does for us. It allows us to stand. Now look at what he says about the enemy here. Look at what he says about the enemy. He says, he says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are a couple of verses here that, that, that talk about our enemy that talk about the devil. And some things I want you to see in the text that we understand about our supernatural enemy are these. Number one, our enemy is not one another. He says we, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Human beings are not our enemies. Even if we have different political opinions, even if we come from different backgrounds, even if we, we, we disagree on points of you know, different things, human beings are never our enemy. Now, I've said before that human beings can be the captive of my enemy, but my brother and sister, other people that are created in the image of God, are never my foe. They, they might be the captive of my foe, but my foe is always Satan and his minions, right? Satan and his army. They are not flesh and blood. So the first thing we see is that they're supernatural. We also understand clearly that they're scheming, which means they're not mindless. It's not just some sort of mindless entity or darkness. It's not some dark, uh, wicked force. There's a scheme. There's a wiliness. There's a plotting. We see that the devil attacks us in strategic ways to undermine the truths of what God has said. We have to be on guard against this enemy because he's a schemer. Because they are crafty and clever, there's a, there's a strategy to what they're doing to undermine the truth of what God has accomplished, right? So we see that they're supernatural. We see that they're scheming. We also see that they're powerful. It talks here about the power that they have and clearly, as is listed here and even further in the text, evil. Evil, powerful, scheming, and supernatural. That's the enemy we're up against. Not one another, not our fellow man, but the devil. Now, there's an interesting thing that can happen. It's important to note that, that people will get bogged down in a section like this, right? And they'll start to go, oh, you know, what, what is this? this uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, rulers, authorities, uh, cosmic powers. What, what are the spiritual forces? Are those different levels of demon? Are they different, you know, like, is there a hierarchy of the devil's army or whatever? Can I tell you, if Paul wanted to be giving us a, a lesson in the hierarchy of the devil's army, he could have done that. He's not doing it here. I think one of the real dangers for all of us when we get into a text like this is we can get bogged down in our fascination with the occult, right? We can get bogged down in our fascination with these supernatural beings that are our enemies, and we can miss the point of what he's trying to say. He's not trying to give us a lecture about the way that the devil has organized his team. And if you get bogged down in that, you've missed what he's saying. What he's doing here is he's calling us to action. He's saying you have an enemy who is strategically working at every point to crush the victory that Jesus has already accomplished. 
Take action, stand firm, put on the armor of God. So on one end of the pendulum, there are, there are people and times in our lives where we get sort of overly preoccupied with trying to pull apart the threads of what, what Satan's army looks like. I, I don't think we want that to happen. There is another danger, though. That pendulum can swing all the way to the other side, and when we get all the way to the other side, we go, there's no such thing as a spiritual enemy. There's no such thing as Satan. He's just an idea. It's just, you know, there's no spiritual. Listen, the Bible is super clear about the fact that we have a real enemy. So we don't want to be preoccupied with satanic forces. We don't want to be preoccupied with this enemy. But we also don't want to be indifferent or apathetic. The whole point in him referencing it here is that we would become alert. That we'd sit up a little bit straighter. That we'd pay attention. Do we have all the details? No. Can we be on guard based on what we know? Absolutely. So he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. There's that standing against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's just taken this whole book to lay out this beautiful idea of what God died in order to establish for us. In his resurrection power. And now he's saying, but you'll have to be on guard. You'll always have to be on guard. I was thinking this week about the fact that as it gets hotter outside, the more and more appealing my backyard becomes, right? At the backyard of my house, we have like a little swimming pool. We've got some lounge chairs. There's a couple of umbrellas out there. There's a palm tree or two. And I look out the window and I, and I see that space and I think, man, it's just such a beautiful spot. It'd be nice to just go spend the afternoon out in my backyard, right? But what I can never forget is that in the midst of all that beauty and in the midst of all the casual places to recline or to swim or to cool off, I am under constant attack in my backyard by UV rays, right? I'm under constant attack. And you can see I'm I'm a pasty white guy. It doesn't take me but about two minutes to get a sunburn. I have to always be aware of that enemy. Now, that illustration isn't apples for apples, right? It's not, a, it's not a perfect illustration of what we're seeing here because UV rays are not supernatural. They aren't intellectual. There's no scheme in a UV ray. And there certainly is in the devil and his, and his forces, right? But the same thing is true that we can never get so lost in the beauty of what Christ has done that we forget we have an enemy who is working at every step to undermine what Jesus has accomplished, right? That's, that's his message here. He says, therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God. He doesn't want us just to take a piece. He doesn't want us just to take our favorite piece, but the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now he's going to give us a list of what these different items are, right? There are six items here that he lists for us in this particular text. Six items in an order, right? Six items in an order. We'll look at them in turn. Um, Most of us have not seen a Roman centurion, maybe at like Christmas Boulevard or something like that. You've seen a person in one of these costumes. Understand that for Paul, he was under house arrest in Rome. So he was shackled to a Roman guard. I doubt that the Roman guard was carrying a four-foot shield or wearing a, a helmet or whatever while they were under house arrest. But Paul would have been in proximity to see Roman guards in this kind of costume all the time. So it's something that's in front of his eyes. It's a, it's a helpful illustration. For us, thinking about a Roman centurion might not be particularly helpful because you probably don't see one regularly. You might find it more helpful in this particular case to think about, instead of thinking about a, you know, a belt of truth and a breastplate of righteousness, maybe you think about a face mask of truth and hand sanitizer of righteousness, right? Those are uh, maybe more equitable to our current experience, things you're using to protect yourself from unseen forces. No? All right, it's fine. I, th- 
I worked really hard on that joke, you guys, so I'm just, whatever, it's fine. Like, okay, it's good. He's gonna give us these six items. The first one I've already mentioned is the belt of truth. Look at what he says here in 14. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. I, I think that each one of these items has, has two elements to it, right? They have, there's there's kind of two sides to each of these elements. The belt of truth, first of all, has to do with being able to stand firm and gird it up in objective truth. We believe that there is such a thing as truth, right? That it's not just your opinion. It's not, you know, hey, whatever you say is true is true. It's not a subjective thing. It's an objective thing. That God created the world and he ordered it in a certain way that he created us with purpose, that he's placed an expectation upon us. There are certifiable facts about the created order and about the nature of God that we need to wrap around ourselves. In a world that's constantly going, well, hey, you know, what, what, you believe whatever you want to believe and as long as we can get along, it's fine. No, no, no. We have to be girded with truth. For the Roman centurion, everything else kind of hooked into the belt. You know what I'm saying? Everything else about our, about our defense against these cosmic forces is rooted in the fact, at one level, that we believe there is truth. And it can be known because God has revealed it. That's, that's the first part of this. But the other side of the belt of truth isn't just an objective knowledge. It's not just that we have good information. There's also a call for us to be living lives of truth. You may remember, it wasn't too many weeks ago, that we were uh, studying together in Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it says, instead of being carried about by every wind of doctrine, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, right? And we talked at the time when we were studying Ephesians 4 about the fact that th that word speaking is not actually in the original language. It doesn't say speaking the truth in love, even though that's the way we've all memorized it. What it says there essentially is truthing in love, it's an action. True thing is a thing we do. What, what does that mean? Well, it means being people of honesty and integrity. Being people of faithfulness and fidelity. People who do what we say we're going to do. There's no room for hypocrisy. There's no room for subtle deceit. There's no room for the white lies that could otherwise take over our lives. I think it's amazing how often the followers of Jesus have no qualms about taking up the weapons of Satan. Satanic weaponry is what lying is and deceit. We shade the truth. I will tell you that in the moments in our lives where we've taken up the weapons of our enemy's warfare in deceit and lying and deception, that our lives begin to unravel. What's foundational for us? Not only knowing that there is truth in God, not only believing that truth can be known, but living a life of honesty and purity and integrity, living a life that truths in what we do and where we go. He says, first, put on the belt of truth. Secondly, in verse 14, back to Ephesians 6, secondly, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Stand therefore, having put, fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, two aspects. One of them, the breastplate of righteousness, I think first is pointing at the fact that we have a righteousness that is not our own, right? It's something that in essence has been buckled onto us. It's the righteousness of Christ that's been placed upon us through his death and resurrection and we are justified because of his saving work. So there's a piece of this that is reminding myself that when God sees me, he doesn't see my flaws. He doesn't see all of the awful examples of my brokenness and my frailty. When he looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's the breastplate, right? That I have been justified by Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 33 says, 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We have been justified by the work of Christ. So there's a a righteousness that we put on. But the other aspect that I think that Paul is referring to here when he says we got to stand by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, I think the other aspect is living a life of righteousness, living a life of moral holiness, pursuing a life of Christian character. We've seen earlier in the text that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So when he talks about buckling on the breastplate of righteousness, it's both an acknowledgement that any righteousness I have is because of Christ has been placed upon me. But in light of that righteousness that I've been given by his grace, I am called and compelled to live a life of holiness in response. That's a righteousness that I, that I carry with me. It's the other side of that breastplate. And it's a defense against the lies of Satan. I was reading a book not too long ago by a, by a pastor up in the high desert. And he talked about the fact that he's convinced that the reason why Christians in the church spend so much time fighting with each other is that they're not occupied with anything better to do, right? That we're not occupied with better things to do. And so in our our lack of uh, things to do, we get busy looking at one another and finding ways to sort of nitpick each other and fight and divide and spread out. He said in his church that he'd found success by calling people to be occupied with living a life like Christ And then what had happened is that all the little petty squabbles and divisions kind of went away because people were too busy doing the things Christ had called them to do and and they were no longer sort of idle and looking for things to fight about. I I thought that was interesting. We're supposed to put on this righteousness. We're supposed to live like Christ because he has done this for us. Not only does it talk about fastening on the belt of truth, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, look at verse 15. It says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's a little bit confusing, but there are two aspects to it, right? One, one thing that shoes do is they provide stability. They provide stability. They allow you to kind of stand and not be knocked over. You can kind of dig in. The gospel of peace, the the gospel that Jesus Christ came and died for us and extends to us or brings to us peace affords us the ability to stand firm against the attacks of the devil. So there's a there's a stability piece to it. In fact, as we think about the gospel of peace, think about think about this in Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. Talking about Jesus, it says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So we understand he's already talked to us about the peace that's been afforded us by Christ. That's that sort of gospel stability in these shoes. But that's not all he's talking about here. The other aspect is the readiness, right? The readiness. What's that talking about? Well, it's the ability to carry that. We talk in this church a lot about the idea, not just of having peace, because we have a confident expectation in what God has said, but what? Radiating peace. That we want to be people who project peace, who carry peace, right? I love, um, I love the passage in, in Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. 
I think sometimes as Christians, one of the ways that the enemy can attack us and get his darts to stick in us is we start to believe that our salvation and that our redemption, that our faith, that all of it is just a selfish pursuit. It's just about what I get out of it. I get to go to heaven. I get my prayers answered. I get this, this peace that's afforded me by Christ. What he's saying is that our shoes should be buckled on in such a way that not only do they give us the stability of knowing where we are in Christ, but they carry us so that we can give that peace to others. A readiness of the gospel of peace. A willingness and a readiness to carry it. That's what we're talking about when we talk about radiating peace. So he says, put those on your feet. The shoes of gospel readiness and peace. Back to 15. He says, the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith. Now these Roman shields, they, they had a couple of different shields. But the, the shield he's talking about here was a shield that was two foot by four foot. It's basically like a, like a giant wall you could hide behind. It was covered uh, with, um, with animal skin and would effectively extinguish fiery arrows, right? Or fiery darts. And it was made in such a way that on each end, there was a, there was a clasp that would allow soldiers to stand shoulder to shoulder and create a wall. You could basically hide behind your shield next to other people, shoulder to shoulder, creating a wall that would extinguish these fiery arrows. I don't want to get too bogged down in the illustration, but I love the idea of a shield of faith. Our confidence in who God is. Our confidence in what God has said. Our confidence in God's presence and his power. That's what the shield of faith is. It's both two aspects. There's a saving faith. There's a saving faith, which is referencing the idea that each and every one of us at some point, who are followers of Jesus, each and every one of us at some point recognized that we were dead and lost in our sin, that we were separated from God and divided from our fellow man, and that we needed rescue. And so we put our faith in Christ. We turn from sin, and we turn to Christ. We called out to Jesus, and by the power of his blood and his resurrection, by his grace, he saved us. That saving faith, that moment we put our faith in Christ. But saving faith isn't the only kind of faith in the life of a disciple. There's also living faith, right? There's also a faith that is lived out. That saving faith should translate into action. We're going to finish our study in Ephesians uh, next Sunday. And then after that, we're going to jump into a study of the book of James. We're going to study uh, the book of James. I think we're in that for about eight weeks. The the reason we're jumping into the book of James is is to investigate the idea of demonstrable faith. Faith that is invisible, that is made visible based on our action, right? So he says here, what's the shield against the darts of accusation, the deceit, the lies? The malice, the temptation, the lust, all those things that the enemy may fire at us to divide us and to cause us to miss out on the truth of who God created us to be. How do we extinguish those darts? It's our confidence, both our confidence in the saving work of Christ and the way in which that faith then compels us to live a different life. A life moved by faith, that's that shield. Back to Ephesians chapter six, it says in 17, take the helmet of salvation The helmet of salvation. I want you to think about your mind for a second. Think about your head and the thoughts that go on there. There there are two different aspects, I think, to the helmet of salvation. There's both a confidence in the work that Christ has accomplished, that right now, standing in front of you, I am saved by grace, right? That I am a child of God, that he chose me and adopted me. There are many of you in the room who have that same helmet of salvation, a confidence in the completed work of Christ in you. But there is also a sense in which my head has to be girded in the confidence and hope of the fact that I am being 
I am being sanctified over time, right? If you spend any amount of time with me, it won't take you very long to, to discover that I'm a broken guy, that I don't get it right every time, that I, that I make mistakes, that I blow it. So do you, right? But I have this hope, this helmet of salvation, this confidence in the fact that not only am I saved today, but I am being saved and glorified over time, that I'm being conformed to the image of Christ, So that helmet, when the devil's trying to attack me and say, you're worthless, nobody likes you, you're not doing a good job, whatever, there's all kinds of attack. That helmet reminds me, no, 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 I am saved. And I am being saved over time. Two aspects, the helmet of salvation. He says, put on truth, put on righteousness, put on readiness to carry the gospel of peace. Hold on to faith and extinguish those darts. Put on the helmet of salvation. And the last item is the only offensive item in the list here. The sword of the spirit. Look at the text with me in verse 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. And he tells us immediately what he's talking about. Which is the word of God? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That then would include the scriptures as they've been revealed to us in the Bible, but also includes the very person of Christ. John 1 tells us that Jesus is the articulation of what God has to say. The clearest thing God ever says, he says in the Logos, or the Word made flesh, Jesus. The last thing he says is, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is what God has said, which is God's voice, God's Word. It's interesting, Jesus certainly uses that offensive tool to fight against Satan in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, he uses quotations of things that God had said to repel the enemy. That will work for us. It's interesting. This week, I, uh, I got an email from Kita Bemis, who's a lovely, wonderful woman of God who's been in our church for a long time. She sent me an email. This is one of her favorite texts. And in fact, she told me that she has been praying this text every day for years and years and years and years. She makes it her pattern and rhythm to put on these things every day because the word of God is an offensive tool, right? It is is an offensive tool in our arsenal to stand firm against the attacks of the devil, right? To stand firm in the ground that Jesus has already accomplished. She, She would want me to stand here in front of all of you and encourage you. It would be a great idea for you to spend the rest of your life praying this text every day. And I don't think she's wrong. He says, put on the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's both an offensive tool against Satan. Not only that, Hebrews 4 tells us that the sword of the spirit or that God's word actually cuts to the core of who we are. So that God's word pierces, to, pierces through the bone and the marrow of who we are. So it's both a refining tool in our life. It's also offensive, an offensive tool against the enemy. But can I tell you what the sword of the spirit never is? It's never a tool against one another. There is no place in scripture where there's a justifiable use of God's word to put down another human being or to tear other people apart. No, it's a tool against our enemy. It's a tool to to carve away and, and, and cut to the core of who we are in refining us. He says, put on truth, put on righteousness, put on gospel readiness and peace. Hold up faith. Put on the helmet of salvation and carry the sword of the spirit. I'll tell you uh, this morning, he's gonna finish. I said there's six items in an order. I don't have time this morning to get into the order, but essentially the order is pray. Pray, pray, pray. He says it like five different ways. Pray, pray, pray. All times in every way, right? We'll, We'll actually, we'll punt it. I wasn't gonna talk about that next week, but we'll talk about it next week. I'll, fin- I'll finish that because it's, it's too important to rush in the time we have this morning. Six items in an order. He says, you know what? It's a beautiful thing that Jesus has accomplished, this unity 
this harmony, this purity, your adoption, your chosenness, all of these things are spectacular, but you need to know that you have an enemy who is working to defeat you in all of those, actively working to divide you and to make you feel like none of this is true. So put on the truth, put on righteousness, right? Put on a gospel readiness and peace. Put salvation on your head, both who you are and who you will be. Carry that shield which will extinguish the accusations of the enemy. And carry God's word as a sword, an offensive weapon. When Satan tries to tell you things that are lies, confront him with that truth. Allow it to carve away the things in you that aren't standing firm. It's interesting as we look at this, and I'll, and I'll finish here. One of the things that struck me as I was studying this text this time is that all of these things that we're encouraged to put on are things that Jesus is. Let me say that again. They are, they're certainly things that Jesus does. But if you actually look at the scripture, what you'll find is that all of these things are things Jesus is. For instance, it says in John fourteen six that Jesus, he himself says he is the truth. So not just that Jesus lives honestly, but he is the truth. Jesus is truth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that he is our righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about the fact that he is our peace. We already looked at that. Galatians 2 verse 20 talks about the fact that he is the source of our faith. Luke 2.30 says that he is our salvation. John 1, 1 and 14 says he is the word of God. Listen, all of these tools, all of these uh, pieces of armor that we're called to put on, can I tell you what? They are Jesus. They are Jesus. We've talked all through this book, all through Ephesians, about the fact that we are called to reveal Christ, that we in our togetherness are meant to be a, a space, a temple, where God's spirit can be put on display, that we are called to reveal Christ by replicating his revolutionary kindness, rooted in humble solidarity. The revelation of Christ, for what it's worth, when we reveal Christ in our lives, is also how we defend against the enemy, Right? They're not two separate things. It's not, hey, live like Christ and defend yourself against the attacks of Satan. What he's saying is if you live like Christ, if you put on Christ, Romans, uh, Romans 13, right? Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to, dra- to, to gratify its desires. When we put on Christ, we are putting on the armor of God. It's the same thing. He is our righteousness. He is the truth. He is our peace. He is our salvation. And so it's the same call. What he's showing us is that in the same call to reveal Christ, we are also girding ourselves up for spiritual battle because our enemy is wily and powerful, supernatural and evil. And we've got to be able to stand our ground when the enemy attacks because we will only experience the peace that Ephesians is talking about in this life in the midst of struggle. So we have to be prepared for it. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would give us a hunger to put on Jesus. That you would help us to see that he is our truth and he is our righteousness and he is our peace. That no one was more shod with readiness to carry the gospel than Christ. And that when we put him on, when we live a life that reveals Jesus, we also put on your armor. That Jesus is your armor against the accusations and attacks of our enemy. There is no question, God, that you are more powerful, that you are more wise, that you are more faithful than we are, and certainly than our enemy is. Would you 
Empower us to be strengthened with your strength and to put on your armor in cooperation with you. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.